Hey, thanks for taking the time to watch this message. Before it begins, just wanted to uh, let you know what you're about to jump into. Uh, when this message was preached live at Anchor Church, there was a power outage. So for the first portion of the message, there was no recording because there was no lights, no cameras, no sound. But when the power came back on, our uh, AV team did a great job of getting the recording going, but you're missing the first portion. So I just want to give you a quick recap of what you missed, and then you can follow along with the rest. Uh, we're in the midst of a series called the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is teaching. And I just want to read the verses that uh, the teaching is on in this message. It says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Uh, from there, shared a golfing story with Pastor Spencer and Pastor Tucker and just uh, their differences in their game and also their personalities. Won't take the time to tell the story, but really just setting up the point of sometimes to get better at golf. It's not just learning a better golf swing. It's getting the baseball swing out of us. And sometimes there's some unraveling of what was there to get better at where we are going. And uh, setting that up is a lot of uh, that's what Jesus is doing with this text. I think that's all the recap you need. Uh, you can jump right in, and uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Hey, V-Team, you are heroes. Uh, if you scan that QR code, you can sign up to be a part of the AV team <laughs> and enjoy stressful moments like that. You guys are the best. Okay, you've heard a golf story. Simply to say, uh, sometimes there is a getting something into us, but a getting something out of us that's necessary. And this is actually what I see Jesus doing in this transition. That he is, uh, he is certainly trying to get something into us when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. This is what I want from you. But Jesus is also taking a moment in these couple of verses to say, not only do I want to get this new way of thinking into you, but we need to get this old way of thinking out of you. Like, this is a simultaneous teaching for Jesus. He's not just saying, hey, here's the things that I want you to know, but he's saying, hey, there's some things that you do know, the way that you're thinking, the way that you're observing, that I want to not just teach you the new, but I want to make sure that we get the old out of you. This is what Jesus is facing, a, a people who need to untangle or unravel a bit of how they've been perceiving the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. These are a people who have been judged and measured and criticized by the religious leaders based on the religious leader's interpretation and application of the law. Also, some of what we see him untangling is a people uh, who, who their view of what the Messiah's arrival would do to the law had been taught to them by the religious leaders. What would it mean to the way that we have been viewing life when, when the, the Messiah shows up, the impact that his arrival will have on Old Testament teaching? And so Jesus, he is introducing Certainly, we've said over and over, he's introducing a new way of living that is counterculture. Now, this is not just counterculture to secular culture, but what we see here today is this is even counterculture to some religious culture. Now, this is where things can get real dicey. 
because most religious community or faith-based or Christian or Jesus-following people, we can all seem to agree on a different way of living that's counterculture when it comes to sin, when it comes to wickedness, when it comes to some blatant behaviors. But things get a little more complicated when it comes to that which we disagree on within our own group, within our own community of people that claim faith of following Jesus. And yet, specifically in this text, the way that we view the scriptures Jesus is also saying, hey, there are ways even within a faith community that is interpreting scripture that uh, he says, I want you to unlearn some of how you have learned to view scripture. Uh, Verse 17 again, Jesus says this, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So look at that phrase again. This is out of the mouth of Jesus. He tells his new followers, don't misunderstand why I came. I didn't come to abolish, to put away with, to destroy, to kill, to eliminate. I didn't come to do that to the law and the prophets. In fact, I came as the fulfillment to, 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 to come in my life, the way that I live, the way that I teach, it is going to be the accomplishing or the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Is 1051 accurate? Is that my time? Okay, thank you. That golf story took too long. I gotta get going. (laughs) He says, uh, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to, to accomplish it. I think it's really important for us, especially before we jump into the next several weeks of teaching. The main point I want us to walk away with today is that Jesus affirms these previously written scriptures. It's really important for us to understand that. But beyond Jesus affirming the law and the prophets, Jesus in this statement reveals his relationship with and his identity in the Old Testament writings. This is really important for us. He says that he is the object to which the law and the prophets point to. It's like, I didn't just come here to say, no, the law and the prophets are okay. He says, in fact, the law and the prophets, how they were written and what they were speaking to was me, that I am the fulfillment. I am the accomplishment of the law and the prophets. Jesus, um, if you read this in so many other texts, he's a fan of the law and the prophets. He, he, He references them, he quotes them. In fact, if you look at just the chapter previously, Matthew chapter four, Jesus three times has just quoted scripture while he's being tempted by Satan out in the wilderness. He quotes the Old Testament. Uh, maybe one of the best places to look at this is after Jesus' death and his resurrection, between resurrecting and ascending back into heaven, there's a story at the end of uh, the book of Luke where he is, is encounters these people who are walking uh, to this, this town called Emmaus. And on this walk, they're, they're considering and questioning what, what's, what happened with Jesus. Like we thought he was the Messiah, but he was crucified. And Jesus, they don't, re- he hasn't revealed that this is him walking with them. He's in disguise. And, uh, he, he begins to tell them the story of Jesus. It says, starting with the law and the prophets, starting with Moses and walking through the Old Testament, Jesus reveals the gospel message to them, the story about himself. And the New Testament hadn't been written yet. The gospels hadn't been written. The way that he tells the gospel story and his fulfillment of them is through the law and the prophets. Jesus affirms, but not just affirms, finds his identity within the Old Testament. 
And Jesus having to make this statement, hey, don't misunderstand why I came. I didn't come to abolish the law. The fact that Jesus has to make this statement means that there had been people and were people misunderstanding why he came, specifically his relationship to the writings of the law and the prophets. He had to say this because some people did think that the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus, would mean that the law would be abolished. Truth is that uh, some still today think that the grace of Jesus in the, New, in the New Testament puts an end to the expectations of the Old Testament. Uh, maybe you're familiar with uh, the battle for the Bible that's happening in our day and age, in our culture, even within the walls of church communities today. Maybe you're not aware of it, but there is a battle for the Bible and what is valid and what do we, what do we accept and what do we reject? And this battle for the Bible, I just wanna say this, uh, it absolutely exists today, but it's not a new battle. It existed in Jesus's world. He has to get in front of people who believed in him and say, some of you are misunderstanding the relationship to the Old Testament. There's a battle of what should be accepted, what should be rejected, and this battle has continued throughout history and still exists today. That there are some that still today have a, a misunderstanding of why Jesus came and the impact that it has on the Old Testament scripture. Now, um, I think that the, the question and the diving in and discovering the relationship to old and new, I think it's an important discovery. I think it's uh, fine, and not just fine, it's important to seek out clarity and, and to have an understanding between old covenant and new covenant and old, old uh, Testament law and how that is impacting in the way that we live today. It's important. I'm not saying avoid the question, but there still today is such misunderstanding of saying, well, because there's some questioning here or it's not the way that I would like it, there is a distancing from principles of scripture and maybe most specifically Old Testament writings. There's movements of even using the word unhitching from the Old Testament. Like because this doesn't really represent God the way that I feel like God would represent himself, that we're just gonna start distancing. And there are churches and movements and, and preachers and believers that uh, are distancing from these writings, most specifically the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's based in a concept of like, we like the God of the New Testament, we don't really like the God of the Old Testament as if they are separate gods. There is a movement of, well, we, we want a God of love, but we don't want a God of holiness as if they're different gods. We want a God of kindness, but not a God of judgment as if a God of kindness and a God of judgment are different gods. Liking the idea of heaven, but rejecting the concept of hell. This movement of like, well, God and his character that seems to be highlighted in the Old Testament, seeing it as so contrary to maybe how God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus in the New Testament and having difficulty reconciling it. So we'll just distance ourselves from that and we'll just take the parts of it that make sense to us in the way that we think in our day and age. But this presents a problem when we consider Jesus's words here on the Sermon on the Mount presents a problem when we consider that Jesus views his own personal, not just affirmations, but relationship and identity found in the Old Testament. Meaning this, I find it difficult to say that I am drawing near to and following Jesus and simultaneously distance myself from that which he affirms and finds identity in. That doesn't make any sense in any relationship 
to say, I'm gonna draw near and follow and honor and worship you, but the parts of you that you find identity in that maybe I'm not so uh, on board with, I'm gonna distance myself. It's impossible to both follow and distance what Jesus affirms. It's, this, is, this is a difficult situation to be in. Um, the image that is on the QR code, I don't know if it'll be up here. Oh, you guys are amazing. It might be on the screen now. It's an image I wanted to show you. Uh, we won't be able to get into the details of it, but what this is just showing is the relationship uh, of the Bible to itself. This is a visual representation of cross-references where the Bible speaks of itself in another spot. And so every uh, arch here is connecting one spot in Scripture to another spot in Scripture that's directly speaking to it. So we start here uh, on the left here is Genesis all the way to Revelation. The New Testament starts about right here. And so anything here crossing over here uh, is the New Testament, Old Testament referencing each other. And so uh, the size of the ark is the distance, like the biggest ones are Genesis all the way to Revelation. The shorter arcs are ones that are books closer to each other. There's a lot we could dig into here, but what I want you to see is that uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's not a dividing line where they don't seem to intersect. Uh, they are so incredibly connected that if we, it's, it's like pulling a, a thread on a sweater. If we start pulling apart some of what is in portions of the Bible, before we know it, we've got nothing left to stand on. Like the Bible speaks of the Bible and supports the Bible, not just the old with the old and the new with the new. Like it is, it is so intertwined that if we start picking and choosing which of it that we accept and which of it we reject, there's not gonna be a lot to stand on because it's all tied together with itself. Tucker sent me this statistic this week. In the New Testament, there are 260 chapters, starting in Matthew, ending in Revelation, 260 chapters in the New Testament. 248 of them have direct references to the Old Testament. 248 out of 260, meaning there's only 12 chapters in the New Testament that aren't directly pulling from and referencing and affirming Old Testament. So if we wanna start distancing Old Testament, we don't have much New Testament to stand on anymore. And if we begin to start taking away even the, the authors that believed in the Old Testament, uh, we, we certainly gotta start getting rid of the Apostle Paul, who references so consistently and is one of the primary writers of the New Testament. And if we keep going down that route, we gotta start eliminating the words of Jesus, who is quoting, affirming, believing, and finding identity in the Old Testament. And if we start editing and deleting Old Testament, there's, it impacts the way that we view the New Testament. Meaning at some point, and I think we need to dive in and discover and the origins of, of the canon and why, why the Bible is the Bible and, and the authorship, all those questions are beautiful and valuable. But at some point, we have to come to the conclusion that the scriptures are accepted as holy as the word of God or not. At some point, that decision has to be made. Is it the word of God or isn't it? Because when we start leaving the Old Testament or some discomforts behind, the whole thing begins to unravel. In fact, there's a, a second century heretic labeled as a heretic named Marcion um, who attempted to start isolating from uh, the Old Testament, deleted the Old Testament, and then started rewriting his own translation of the New Testament, omitting all Old Testament references. And so uh, he just edits it down, edits it down. Anything that references Old Testament is deleted, is gone, uh, or is adapted. And in fact, his writing of the New Testament absolutely takes these verses we're studying, words from the mouth of Jesus, pulls them out and deletes them. 
because Jesus is affirming the old. Like, how do we follow Jesus if his writings say, uh, I support the Old Testament? Like, he found the contradiction here. Says so like, so the only thing that we can do at this point is start editing the very words of Jesus that we say that we're following. Today, people who would still find themselves in a line with this, this train of thought or this belief philosophically, uh, a primary teaching would be that um, the law or let's just say behavior, uh, these requirements have been categorically abolished by Jesus and that what remains is, is love, that we just live in a way of love, we love people, we love, and, and that everything needs to be filtered with love. Love is the greatest commandment. Uh, these three remain, love is the greatest. Like everything is kind of now bound to love is the, the ultimate command, which is hard to argue because love is the character of God and love is the greatest. I'm not uh, criticizing or, or arguing against that. But what begins to be difficult is whose definition of love? This is where it gets really hard. Like, yes, of course we're to love. But when we're trying to pit love against judgment, all of a sudden, like, well, whose definition is it? And what culture is continually impressing upon us is that love always equals tolerance. That if the way that you are viewing somebody else or they're, they're a certain way of living or a certain behavior, if there's not a line of just saying, no, we're just gonna love, we're just gonna accept, we're gonna tolerate, like that is the only definition of love that culture wants to push. I just wanna say this bluntly, and I know some people probably don't wanna hear this, but biblical love does not equate to just total acceptance. Biblical love does not mean absolute tolerance. I mean, if we believe the character of the God of the Bible, there is not tolerance. There, there is love that is always, first and foremost, a pursuit of holiness. God is holy. He, he, and everything that he does has to be filtered through holiness. And so any expression of love isn't void of a pursuit of holiness, isn't void of total righteousness. In fact, his act of love fully embodies his holiness and his righteousness. And maybe our physical bodies are, dis, are, are uncomfortable with the way that he could express love. And maybe some Old Testament stories that maybe make us scratch our heads we have to understand that God is ultimately holy. And so God, we're gonna submit to your holiness. And yes, we want to be a people of love, not a people of judgment, but, but God's definition of love is what we have to run with and roll with, not cultural's definition of love. And when the problem that we see is that when we start dissecting and, and, and separating and leaving behind certain aspects of teaching and of the law, what we're left with is a cherry-picked text of what we want God to be and what we want God to say, which may be the most inflated posture a human can take. And what we are doing is we're turning and rejecting the concept, we're turning on and rejecting the concept that we were created in God's image and we're turning around trying to create God in our image. We've said this before, and we better keep saying this. God gets to self-define, or he's not God. As soon as the created begins to tell the creator who he ought to be, he's no longer God. God is God. And we have a belief that he is God, he is supreme, we submit to him. And so if God is God, God gets to decide what he's like. He gets to decide what he wants from us. He gets to decide how he would like to be worshiped. He gets to decide what he would like his followers to do and to behave. And it doesn't really matter what we think about it. If he's God and we're gonna follow him, we submit to what God decides. And I know that's hard on our egos. 
and it's hard on our flesh. And sometimes we would do things different than God does it, but we don't get to make that decision or we're not following him. He's no longer our leader. We're now trying to create our image of God. And the way that God reveals to us his self-definition, who he is, what he stands for, it's through his written word. This is how we get to learn and discover the character of God. And so if this is the gift he's given us, hey, this is how you can learn who I am, what, what, what my standards are. And if we take what his revelation to us and then we start picking it apart, we are not serving God anymore. We as a church, one of our highest values, we have seven core values as a church. One of them is the Bible. And the way that we say that we value this is we say we anchor ourselves to the truth of God's word. We believe that it is alive and it is active and it is transforming us into the image of its author. We do not look to the Bible to transform the author into our image. We believe that the Bible is transforming us into the image of its author. And the reason we use the word anchor is not just because that's in our, our, our name as a church, but an anchor. When we anchor ourselves to something, it means we are not going anywhere. We're not cutting off from anything. Like we are stuck to this. We are not, we're not going anywhere. And an anchor prevents us from drifting. And so this was language we used from the very beginning uh, before Anchor Church even launched that we are a people who do not drift the way that culture might want us to drift or our own desires or our own flesh. Like we are not drifting from holding tight to the truth of God's word. We believe it's God's word and we're gonna hold to it. We're not distancing from it. We're tethered to it and we're not gonna drift. This is who we are as a church and it's our hope and our prayer that as a culture of Anchor Church, we're just Bible people. We just are people that love the word of God. Now, as much as I can't force you to read your Bible and I can't force you to love reading your Bible, the culture that I hope permeates this church is if you've been here for a while, you leave here and you're like, man, those are Bible people. Like they, they like the Bible. They have their own Bibles with them. I see them underlining and highlighting and uh, I, I see them uh, talking about the Bible and we're people that uh, are reading our Bible consistently. We're sharing scripture with each other and we're memorizing it and we're referencing it. And like the Bible is just ingrained in who we are in every conversation. Like we just read our Bibles because we, we have such high value that it is how God has revealed himself to us. And he is king, he is God and we are here to honor and submit and learn who he is. And then we're gonna follow it. We're gonna be Bible people. Jesus comes and he makes it really clear. I didn't come to tell you to be lawless. I came to give you a deeper understanding of the law and its purpose. He didn't come to cancel or change anything, but to reveal to us by example and by teaching the full depth of its meaning. Uh, verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Church, we're still here occupying this earth. Therefore, the word of God still holds as the unchanging standard. If we follow Jesus, it's the unchanging standard because these are the words from his mouth. The law is fulfilled by the person and the grace of Jesus on our behalf, but still remains as our guide to faithful obedience until the Father establishes the new heavens and the new earth. Now these statements could and probably should spark a little bit of tension in us or some questions because it, it's true that there's much of the Old Testament law that um, 
is no longer practiced or seems to be altered a little bit in the New Testament. What do we do about that? Specifically, the sacrificial system, dietary restrictions, the Sabbath. Jesus himself gets questioned on, hey, you're not treating the Sabbath the way that we interpreted the Old Testament to interpret the Sabbath. Um, and so some people are dissecting this as like, well, what holds, what doesn't hold? Because uh, we believe the Old Testament and some people have uh, kind of divided up all Old Testament law into like civil law, uh, into uh, moral law or into ceremonial law. And a lot of people said, well, uh, civil law was for that kind of nationality, that group that doesn't really apply. Um, there's a lot of cultural stuff that doesn't really apply for us today. So ceremonial goes aside. So let's just settle on moral law. Some people land on this. Um, well, whatever Old Testament is moral, that's what we hold to. But again, I, I'm not mad at this or people that hold to this. I just come back to the question of like, well, who decides what's moral? Uh, like we're pretty flawed in ourselves of deciding what is morally okay and what's not. So really where I find uh, myself landing um, is a distinction that's uh, maybe you don't find these words laid out this way in scripture, but it's the heart of the law versus the letter of the law. Maybe you've been in church for a while, you've heard this. Uh, the heart of the law versus the letter of the law. And some of our tendency is just to simply read the surface level letter of the law and not determine what the heart of this rule was in the first place. And this is where there seems to be some adaptation through Jesus and through some New Testament writers is they never abolish the law. They just reveal the heart behind the law that religious people turned the heart of the law into a checklist of to-dos that we can evaluate ourselves on. And Jesus, he just takes it to a whole nother level. In fact, what we're about to dig into, we won't study it right now, um, is in the next couple of sections of text, Jesus says stuff like, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, do not be angry with your brother. What Jesus is saying is like, I'm not telling you it's okay to murder anymore. In fact, I'm holding to, that law still stays. But I want you to understand, it wasn't just about the physical act of murdering someone, it was about the undealt with hatred in your heart. Jesus takes it deeper. He goes on to say, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, don't even look at a woman with lust. Jesus is not like lowering the bar, he's getting to the heart of what the law was always supposed to represent. So when we look at these concepts, even the, the Sabbath itself, Jesus says, don't you realize that, that the Sabbath was given to man, not man to the Sabbath? Like you have taken the heart of the law and you've turned it into this legalistic letter of the law. And he tries to break that down too. He tells the, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, like you're so careful to tithe a tenth of everything from your herb garden, but you've neglected the greater heart of God of justice and of kindness and of mercy. Jesus consistently is teaching, yeah, 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 the letter of the law says this, but I came to reveal the heart behind that. So when we, go to the, when we go to the Old Testament, there may be some, some texts or some rules that were given, whether we could classify them as ceremonial or whatever. The, the goal of reading Old Testament law is not what is the letter of the law that I can feel good about myself by checking those boxes and being more spiritual than I used to be or more spiritual than others because I checked the box. The goal is to read Old Testament law and say, God, what was your heart behind this? What is the heart of the law? What were you dealing with in my flawed flesh that needs to, to have some rules? Because if there aren't rules, my flesh is gonna take me down a dangerous path. God, what is the heart of the law, not just the letter of the law? I'm gonna ask the band to join me. I, uh, I really actually was considering this concept. I, I, 
We, we just talked about salt and light as the previous things that Jesus preached on. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And I think it'd be easy to say, well, okay, Jesus finished the sermon on salt and light uh, and he put that one away and they pulled out a brand new sermon about the law and then he's gonna put that one away and take out a sermon on anger. I actually love and believe the flow of this uh, is beautiful. I know in our Bibles, there's like a new paragraph and a new heading and it could make us separate what we just talked about from what we're talking about today. But I actually love this idea of Jesus going in this order. He's just said, you are the salt, you are the light. And if you were here last week, the final statements Jesus is making says, therefore, let uh, your good deeds shine out for all to see so that they'll praise your Father in heaven. That the light was the way that we live. And I love that he's saying, hey, I want you to live in a way that is so different to the darkness around you. And then he immediately goes into like, salt and light don't get rid of the rules. Actually, salt and light, they get sanctified. They continue to grow progressively. Sanctified is, is a theological term, meaning we become the righteousness, progressively growing in the righteousness that God has already labeled upon us. Justification is a word that means that we are declared righteous. Justification happens instantaneously. As soon as we put faith in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection makes us righteous before God. And yet the rest of our days, we're becoming that righteousness. We're growing in that. And I love it, he's saying salt and light. You are salt, you are light. Your good deeds are gonna be so influential in this world when you occupy the platform that I've given you. So don't be misled, salt and light. Just because the grace of God has touched your life doesn't mean we reject any morality, that we're just gonna be people that are accepting his forgiveness and then not being sanctified. Then we are growing more and more in righteousness. I don't know how many times we've already hit it in these first 20 verses of Matthew chapter five, that we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that we are people growing in holiness, not to try to earn God's grace, but his grace touches us. We're salt and light and we live in a way that is different to culture and we hold true to the standards of scripture. If you're willing and able, would you stand with me? Lord, I just ask for your, uh, your holy presence in these last couple minutes we have together. I know uh, time-wise and just some of the distractions of the day uh, I just ask for your wisdom on how to handle this moment with uh, clarity and with brevity. I want to uh, give a chance to respond to this message. We wanna be a people that don't just learn intellectually, but respond. My prayer is that our response in this moment would not be that we leave here with just more discipline and tenacity to go fulfill the letter of the law and we miss out on the heart of the law. In fact, my prayer is that our response in this moment would just be just a passion for Christ. And what we see in Jesus and the way that he lived and the way that he reflected the teachings of the law is he had such a passion to honor the Father and honor the words from the Father. Even love in the garden, uh, as he's about to face some immense physical discomfort, he says, Father, I came here to do your will, not mine. This isn't the way I would pick and choose for this to happen, but I submit to you, my goal is to honor the Father. And in these verses we see here, such deep respect and honor of the Word of God, the written Word of God. My hope and my prayer is as a response as a church, an intimacy with Christ, where there's a deepening desire to honor the Father and honor the Father's words. I think a very practical step 
So we get our eyes on scripture far more often than the Sunday mornings we happen to attend and someone's teaching it to us. We're a Bible people. Maybe some of you, you don't know where to start or how to read the Bible. And those are conversations we absolutely would love to have with you. Here's a simple starting block. Go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Take just a couple of verses at a time. Before you read them, say, God, I wanna hear from your word. I'm not just here to learn some information, but God, what does this say about you? And how do I respond to who you are? It's that simple. God, what is this, what these verses I'm about to read, I believe it's alive, it's active. What does it say about you? And how do I respond to what it says about you? And read for, I mean, these sections of Sermon on the Mount won't take you 30 seconds to read, but God is gonna begin speaking to you in such a deep way as you honor him and honor his word. Maybe for some of you that have been reading your Bible for a while, it's time to go back to those Old Testament laws and start discovering the heart of God because his character is all over it. The gospel story of Jesus is all throughout it. It's what Jesus used to share the gospel. What is, maybe it's time to go back and say, God, where is your heart? What does this mean that I respond to the character of who you are in scripture? Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. I wanna tell you the justification, being declared righteous, it's available to you today right here, right now. And the beauty of the gospel is not that we perform a certain way before God is pleased with us. He is pleased with what Jesus did. And when we say yes to Jesus, his righteousness immediately covers us and he is pleased with you. And then you join the journey that we're all on of reorienting the way that we live, discovering the ways and the teachings of Jesus. We invite you to join us on that journey. Uh, The band's gonna wrap this up in just a moment. I know timing got a little thrown off today, but I'm gonna pray. And um, we're gonna invite you to stick around for a few minutes of worship. Um, Spence, will you just like give a formal dismissal in a couple minutes? And if people wanna hang out a little bit longer than that, they can. Um, But I wanna pray, put the mic down, and uh, we're just gonna enjoy just a couple more minutes in the presence of God. This is a personal response time for you. Um, And then group signups and stuff will be out there. Members are gonna be meeting 10 minutes later out there. Um, Service project this afternoon. Uh, We just love that Anchor is so much more than what's happening here on a Sunday morning. But Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful for your word. Lord, let us be a place that doesn't just have a, a value written in a booklet or on a website, but let us be a people that anchor ourselves to the truth of your word. We do believe it is alive and it is active and it is consistently transforming us into your image. Lord, let us be a people that as we draw near to Christ, we draw near to your word. God, I just ask for a supernatural hunger for your word. God, those that maybe are routinely reading the Bible, that there would just be a, just an increased delight, that it's not just a discipline, but it's a delight. God, those that um, it's not a normal routine to read scripture. God, there would just be a supernatural craving that you place inside of them to discover more of who you are, your heart, your principles, what it means to be a follower of you. God, let us be a people of your word. God, thank you for the depths of this sermon and the privilege it is to walk through it together as a church. Uh, We love you. We worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.